You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Ramona Ray from Queen's University Belfast and Professor John McCafferty from University College Dublin. Their paper was entitled The Lost Years, Elizabeth Carey in Ireland, 1622 to 1625. Early uh, critical work on the the life and works of Elizabeth Carey, Lady Falkland, has tended to focus on her status as the first Renaissance English woman to author an original drama. And the tragedy of marrying is by far the most discussed example of women's writing in the pre-1660 period, uh, so much so that the term uh, Kerry studies is now in usage. More recently, critics have begun to turn their attention uh, away from the drama and towards Kerry's other works. And it's gradually being realised that Kerry's is a writing life. It's a life in which text is being produced consistently across the life cycle, beginning, of course, with her girlhood translations of uh, Ortelius's Mirror of the World and concluding with the letters and the petitions uh, written just a few months before her death. The exception to the idea of a consistent writing life would seem to be the period Carrie spent in Ireland, uh, the period uh, when her husband, uh, Henry, was appointed Lord Deputy. And Kerry is in Ireland uh, between September 1622 and July 1625. Now, Henry Kerry's uh, viceroyalty in Ireland has generally been treated as a long, slow failure. And this has led to a fairly slim presence in the historiography. Certainly his style and title, uh, impressive in declaration, was uh, riddled and frazzled in realisation. As one historian notes, his querulous inability to manage Ireland and his loss of influence in England bore bruised fruits. His ingrained anti-Catholic intent was subordinated to the Crown's internationalised Irish domestic policy. He alienated and frustrated his own patron, Buckingham. He irritated both Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants, His fiscal policy went awry, his own profiteering schemes did the same, and his intended parliament fell to uh, really his own procedural errors. And Kerry's 1625 conversion affected her husband as a domestic impotence, a domestic impotence which perfectly aligned with his public policy impotence. Now, such a trajectory of disappointment notwithstanding, things started for uh, Henry and Elizabeth with considerably more buoyancy. Uh, Certainly in 1623, it might be surmised that for Carey, 
living in Ireland was conceived of as a long-term commitment. She travelled to Ireland with seven of her children, uh, two further children, Patrick and Henry, uh, were born in Ireland, and she enrolled Lucius, uh, the eldest son, uh, at Trinity. This much points to planning and projection, but Ireland was also part of Kerry's life from a much earlier date. In 1597, Kerry includes a description of Ireland in her translation of Ortelis. An imaginative engagement with Ireland, then, is integral to her first writerly efforts. Henry Kerry, who uh, Kerry marries in 1602, was knighted in Dublin in 1599 and would surely have conversed with his new wife about his recent Irish experience. Most importantly, Kerry's decision in 1622 to mortgage her marriage jointure in order to fund the trip to Ireland occasioned a catastrophic family rupture, leading to her 1624 disinheritance. Most accounts suggest that it was Kerry's conversion to Catholicism, the later conversion in uh, 1626, that occasioned the family rift. An alternative reading might be that prolonged discussion, argument and preparation for the move to Ireland was the more likely cause. Now, as part of a larger study on which John and I are engaged, we want to argue that Ireland, as imaginative, discursive, material and religious phenomena, has a much greater influence on Kerry's life than has hitherto been acknowledged. For the purposes of today, we want to concentrate on the time Kerry actually spent in Ireland. Her three years in Ireland are frugally figured in the critical literature. Of the little work that has been conducted in this topic, by far the most uh, influential discussion is Dina Rankin's much-cited uh, 2007 essay, A More Worthy Patroness, in which Dina argues that in Ireland, Kerry pursued a public life, patronised writers, taught herself Irish, fraternised with Irish Catholics and inaugurated a cottage spinning and weaving industry, moving energetically between uh, religions and cultures. Rankin's main source is The Life, which is widely drawn upon for biographical information in Kerry studies. Written in the mid-1640s in the English convent of Cambrai by Kerry's daughter, Lucy Kerry, a Benedictine nun, with marginalia and emendations by her sister Mary and her brother Patrick, the life's representation of Ireland is brief. It's granted only six folios out of 98, and even these half-dozen are uh, interdispersed with general character observations. More immediately, and as Rankin fully recognises, the life is not an entirely reliable source. Its partial, hagiographic approach means that Kerry tends to be seen in terms of a single life event, the 1626 conversion. Hence, it's potentially enabling to introduce two 17th-century sources, sources which are new to Kerry's studies. Both share with the life historical anchorage in the 1640s. Each references Kerry directly, and common to both are traces of oral cultures that testify to Kerry's status in the contemporary Irish communities. They are aligned fundamentally 
in that they are creations of elite male commentators reflecting on a woman's impact and effects in a specific early modern time and place. And we would like today to begin to think through these sources, addressing in particular how we approach and interpret Kerry's time in Ireland, before moving to apply them to reflect back on the life, the primary reference point uh, up to now. How can we enlist these discoveries to reorientate our use of the life and other materials? Okay, so the first source um, dates from the 1640s. It's the history of the Irish Capuchins, composed in South, by the South County Dublin-born Nicholas Archbold in his exile in Charleville, which is now in northern France. And Kerry is given a short cameo during a two-page deathbed scene in a 156-page manuscript. So again, this is only a small bit of a larger work, just like the life. The second source comes from James Ware, a Dublin Protestant official and antiquarian. And this is his diary of occurrences for 1623 to 1666, a retrospectively glossed chronicle in which Kerry is allotted six lines. Now you can see a team emerging here. The Archbold realisation of Kerry occurs during a 10-page, um, there's the original, it's a 10-page necrology biography of uh, a caption called Edward Bath of Drumcondra, whose exemplarity lies in his abandoning a rich inheritance and, above all, his skill in reducing Protestants to the Catholic religion. Archbold's world of conversions is one of black and white binaries in which heretics are not only human manifestations of theological poison, but are also a source of poison in themselves. So salvation is at stake here in this scene. So the account is suggestive, I think, at multiple levels. Uh, traditionally, Kerry has been seen in terms of her embrace of Catholicism, her identification with a religion antithetical to established Protestantism, marking her out then as ideologically resistant. This conversion scene suggests rather that Kerry is engaged by processes of conversion, by their import uh, appearances and the opportunities they provide for discussion and debate. The descriptors where Lady Falkland, deputess of Ireland, is conjured as a wonderful, earnest and expert woman, are testimony not only to Kerry's discursive skills, but also to her standing in an interpretive nexus. Writ large is the idea of Kerry as disputant and her position in a matrix of theological argument. At issue is a dialogue between the actions books describe and the actions books precipitate. In this connection, it's relevant that the Irish section of the life is also the point in the conversion narrative at which reading gives way to reality, a text to people. Like many other contemporaries, Kerry read her way into Catholicism, yet her autodidact confessionalisation steers uh, quite uniquely away from books of controversy. She simply rejects Calvin, dismisses Hooker, and builds her transition from Augustine. In contrast to other high-ranking women, such as Anne of Denmark, Kerry's conversion is decidedly solitary, not coterie. Meeting her first Catholic, Dermot, uh, fifth baron Inchiquin in Ireland, as the life intimates, is not just important for normalising the notion of aristocratic connections in conversion, it's also reflective of a Catholic insistence on reconciliation to the church, requiring activation of the will as well as understanding. 
Another flamboyantly Catholic Irish aristocrat, Walter Butler, the 11th Earl of Ormond, known as Walter of the Beads, would provide the Drury Lane stable setting for her reception by Richard Smith, uh, Bishop of Chalcedon, on the feast of Lawrence O'Toole, uh, Archbishop of Dublin, uh, in November 1626. These two Irish sponsors of Kerry's rebirth shared something that she and they were as yet unaware of, but that their biographers knew painfully well. Both Inchiquin and Ormond would have their heirs removed from their Catholic upbringing through wardships, which turned them into committed Protestants. Both of Lee's, uh, Merlick O'Brien and James Butler, uh, Marquis of Ormond, were major players in the religious wars of the 1640s. So Kerry and her biography-writing children are moving in one direction, while her friends, the uniquely named Irish characters of the Capuchin manuscript, are moving in another. In this way, the religiously divided and royalist Kerrys wrote their own anxieties back into their mother's Irish experience. So the lives on the other named Irish figure, Dean Nicholas Hackett, the Scottish-born Jesuit convert, also points forward to Kerry's conversion and its consequences, as the whole manuscript does. But her curiosity about his motives for joining the established church and her discovery that it was indeed for worldly purposes, his distaste, and I'm not surprised, for joining the risky Scottish mission instead of a quiet life back at headquarters in Rome, refers back to the Catholic view that priestly conversions were either venal or venereal or both. Hackett may also serve as a prefiguring antitype for Hugh or Serenus Cressy, the Protestant dean of Lachlan, whose journey to Rome began when Elizabeth Carey introduced him to her Benedictine confessor, Cuthbert Fursden, in the 1630s. Cressy's work was well known to her daughters, and to give them their religious names, Dames Maria and Magdalena, at Cambrai. We know from the life of Carey's communication with established Catholic lords in Ireland. However, what the Archbold description offers is a firmer and surer sense of Carey's network of contacts. The pale families involved in this story, the Whites, the Moors, the Baths, are all Old English, but they're also religiously mixed families. Carey is the English Protestant outsider called into Leakslip Castle at the close of a seemingly irresolvable and intractable affair. Her friar adversary, Edward Bath, serves several functions in this text. His half-brother, Sir John Bath, would be the leader of those who in 1627 negotiated directly for Old English Catholics with Charles I, making him one of those who openly negated the king's other body in Ireland, her husband as Viceroy, the Viceroy of Ireland. John Bath was also, Archibald points out, much favoured by Buckingham, guess who? Carey's husband's alienated patron. Hence, Carey's celebrity appearance is played out on a packed page designed in part to evoke the two decades before 1641, as Archibald says, as the time of our great supportation in religion. In addition, Carey, the passage would seem to suggest, has attended such meetings before. At the very least, her presence during this episode indicates a trajectory of not dissimilar experiences and undertakings. In Ireland, and in the space of a short time, Carey had established for herself a formidable reputation to the extent that, as her being called upon suggests, that she is a last resort in an attempt to win back a wayward noble woman to the Protestant fold. And further limed in the uh, Capuchin history is a sophisticating of the literate Carey. Archbold is much concerned with uh, scripturians or biblicists 
women who, as he puts it, romped in scriptural fields like untamed deer. Striking in this respect is that the passage separates out Carrie's secular and non-secular reading. Biblicist, she's described as a biblicist and reader of histories. Carrie's early knowledge of multiple authorities is testified to by her tutors. By extension, made manifest in the passage is the application of these knowledges in a situation reliant upon her intellectual and scholarly prowess. If Archbold develops a typology of female conversion, Carrie's defeat comes about because Lady White, uh, whose spiritual fate animates the account, takes silence for her buckler as a simple woman whose glory was rather to believe what the church taught her than to follow reasoning about it. Behind this phrase lies a Catholic contention about the degree to which Protestants permit their women to be out of control and about the effeminacy of conformity to the established church. Only when male priestly hegemony is restored through female acquiescence is salvation possible. Such a scenario, scenario, Carrie, through her amenuensis, is made to admit to uh, indirectly and indeed prefiguratively. She says... You disturb her no more. If I myself had been born and bred in the papist religion, I would never depart with it. Adding to the personal voice recorded in the letters, Archibald's account brings into greater visibility Carrie as autobiographical I. A kind of declaration, if I myself, suggests both Carrie's half-admission of the inadequacy of her own Protestant arguments and a recognition of the power of another woman's word, or, as the passage has it, another woman's silence. And uh, in a revealing daring entry, James Warren notes that news of Carey's turning papist reached Dublin in December 1626, and we might pinpoint in Archbold's history, therefore, an experience which was to prove formative. By the close of his account, uh, the vignette Archbold elaborates points towards Kerry's own uh, later conversion. And crucially, it does so by by deftly placing an Irish deathbed at its heart. Lady White's constancy, it is claimed, provides Kerry with a model for subsequent conduct. It might also be suggested that the striking, conflicted relationship sketched here between a woman and her mother is reenacted later in the troubled relationship between Carrie and her own mother, almost as if the experience in Ireland was to prove a stimulus, a rehearsal for the later family rift. Thus Carrie sides with Lady White against her mother, telling her mother, you disturb her no more, in the same way as she was to react against her own mother's injunctions. Intersecting themes of conversion and family disgrace are common to the Irish episode and Carrie's later falling out with members of her family. Similarly, the visceral uh, bodily metaphors deployed uh, here, this highly stomached her mother. Uh, Lady White dishonoured all her family, the mother prevailing nothing. These reoccur in the angry letters of Elizabeth Tanfield, Carrie's mother, to her daughter. My desire was to have you lie in that religion wherein you were bred. You have fallen into mischief. The experience of witnessing a daughter disobeying her mother in Ireland is echoed, if not imitated, in the contours of Carrie's familial estrangement. 
if, uh, as we've been suggesting, Ireland was a source of contention for Kerry and her family from the early 1620s, then it's possible to suggest that Kerry's pledged allegiance to Lady White was because she saw shadowed in the familial complexities of her conversion the rudiments of her own personal and generational situation. So moving from spiritual identif- one spiritual identification to another has parallels with moving from one country to another. And we learn from the life that Kerry left Ireland during a violent tempest at sea. And indeed, as uh, an entry from 1625 in James Ware's diary confirms the same, but at, at the same time adds a detail testifying to the impact Kerry made during her Irish sojourn. Lady Falkland, by extremity of weather, was driven back into Ireland, he writes, offering a secular interpretation in the place of the life's religious tenor. The Kerry envisaged here is a rather different construction to Archibald's caption history. Both rich and poor, it is claimed, have been by her exceedingly wronged. This is still the Kerry who had made an indelible impression then, but in this representation she's faulted, perhaps a reference to the Irish apprenticeships she instituted. We have to do more work to follow this up. Whereas biting envoy carries the clear tones of those Dublin castle Protestants such as Annesley, Loftus and Parsons who held Kerry's husband complicit for all the vacillating on the Catholic crackdowns, who came to disrelish his patron, Buckingham, and who hated his revenue schemes. Their rancour was compounded by the suspicion which Kerry's conversion then attached to her husband's Protestantism. Very frequently the husbands of Catholic convert women are considered shaky in their own religion because how would they have let their wives out of control in this way? Indeed, throughout his diary, where reserves personal commentary, highly pejorative in both instances, just for Elizabeth Carey and just for the Duke of Buckingham. We cannot be sure, of course, however, and, and that there is an additional implication that Carey's departure is temporary only, suggesting, as we speculated earlier, that the period in Ireland was initially imagined as of some duration. Writes where most men were glad, praying she might never return. Carey's love for Ireland is thrown into relief by Ware's antipathy. The life insists on Carey's affection for, with interchangeably, that nation and its Catholics. Two other engagements, very briefly, with Ireland are worth mentioning, just in passing for now. The first is her acquiring Irish true Bible reading, and this reference to someone actually using the 1602 New Testament is incredibly rare and interesting in itself. I got very excited by this. But it's pairing with another language, Transylvanian, the only other language that Kerry is recorded as forgetting through lack of practice and utility, says a great deal about the English gaze, or rather the English ears of Kerry's biographers. Second, within the slender Irish folios here, there is a good coverage of Kerry's role in what we could now call upskilling and building an innovation industry, apprenticeships and domestic manufacture, tallying well with Mary Louise Coulihan's identification of a rhetoric of improvement in idealised communities subscribed to and pursued by English and Scots women settlers in 17th century Ireland. Now, the um, Irish section of the life ends as it does with the naming of a child as Patrick. Uh, In devotion to the great patron of the country she called by his name, she did believe did take them both into his protection. And this, along with Kerry's departure from Ireland in 1625, have been read as strains of of the strain her burgeoning conversion was putting on her marriage. But I think it's possible to pull against the life's itinerary here. The first book of the Dublin printing press when the viceregal couple arrived in, in 1622 was Christopher Sibthorpe's advertisement against Irish Catholics. Appended to the book was a long letter from James Usher, 
you see there, a first draft of what would become the 1632 religion anciently professed by the British and Irish, the proud print debut of his patriotic Protestant Patrick. So Patrick's name could just as easily have been Henry's pick. Likewise, Kerry's departure from Ireland in early autumn 1625 with the younger children could have been Henry Carey's choice. His choice as a veteran of the Nine Years' War, as the spectre of Ireland opening up again as a second front in war with Spain, hovered into view yet again. The shuttling between the traces of Carey's life in the mid-1620s, the idealisations, attitudes and anxieties of her children, and the imperatives of Nicholas Archbold and James Ware help us to understand more about Carey's Irish years and why they're treated as they are. By the mid-1640s, treating Carey's Irish experience in a more compressed way made a lot of sense. Two long shadows now lay across the page. The first was cast by October 1641, sickingly awkward thing for English and old uh, English Catholics alike. Second were the overtures the King was making to the Irish Catholic Confederates, even as they write, a matter that absorbed the entire political energy of Walter Butler's heir, James. Yet in terms of Kerry's lived experience, Ireland was a pivot, a watershed in her sense of herself, a shaping moment that was to inform her subjectivity and her writerly destiny. Mobilising these complementary and conflicting narratives is enabling not only in beginning to recover her lost history, but also in energising us to look forward and backwards in her life journey. We glimpse in these manuscript entries a Kerry who is less author than uh, interventionist, less dramatist than disputant. Discovered in the archive is a woman writer who came to be known as a cause celeb. Or to put the point in another way, attending to the Kerry-Ireland intersection sparks appreciation of her less as a playwright than as a controversialist, as a woman who is receptive not so much to text as to the vagaries of material experience, and as an agent infinitely more affiliated, integrated and conjoined than we have been wont to believe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.